got a little bit of bad news last week. Henry sent me the message, uh, R.C. passed away. So um, I'm very fortunate that we were able to sit down and talk to him for a little while and get, get, some, get some of that history down. And uh, uh, very sad for him and the guys in Henrico and guys and gals in Henrico and his family. So, uh, well, well, thank you for Robbie. And, and you're right. Th- this is really the reason why we're – one of the reasons why we're doing these kind of podcasts is to um, listen to the, uh, the stories and the activities that the men and women in the fire service and EMS and even law enforcement – are uh, bringing to the table because there'll be a day when they won't be able to bring it to the table. And um, it is unfortunate that, you know, our really our first guest as a, yeah. as a single person outside of us four was, uh, was R.C. Dawson, and we did uh, lose R.C. last Thursday. So I don't know if it's appropriate, but I'm going to ask if we can sort of dedicate this podcast to him. And, uh, and I'm sure there's others out there that we've lost this year too. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And joining me today, once again, are the assistant producers or co-hosts or uh, maybe call them creative consultants from episode one uh, with the introduction and a number of other episodes since uh, in the first year we've had this podcast up. And welcome again, John Crosby. Thank you, sir. And Wheat Baldwin. Thank you, Robbie. And Henry Rosenbaum. Thank you, Robbie. So the key thing with this is I, I just got to give a shout-out to you three guys because you've been kind of my sounding board in this whole thing and helped me out with a couple of episodes and guests and uh, co-hosting. And you've given me great advice over the years with the possible exception of uh, one time when I was driving a Jeep into the parking lot at Kings Dominion, we called them. Um, <laughs> they've all been great advice, uh, particularly for the podcast, and I just want to say I appreciate it. Thank you guys for the help. Glad to help you. So uh, this kind of is the uh, first anniversary. Well, I'm going to pu- publish this on uh, January the 7th, which has a little bit of a date significance uh, we'll talk about in a few minutes. But uh, this whole thing started December of last year uh, with a dinner uh, Henry and I were at and started telling the story of R.C. Dawson uh, going to um, a fire station, kind of holding court with the crew there and telling stories. And uh, got a little bit of bad news last week. Henry sent me the message, uh, R.C. passed away. So um, I'm very fortunate that we were able to sit down and talk to him for a little while and get, get, some, get some of that history down. And uh, uh, very sad for him and the guys in Henrico and guys and gals in Henrico and his family. So, uh, well, well, thank you for Robbie. And, and you're right. Th- this is really the reason why we're one of the reasons why we're doing these kind of podcasts is to um, listen to the, uh, the stories and the activities that the men and women in the fire service and EMS and even law enforcement are uh, bringing to the table because there'll be a day when they won't be able to bring it to the table and, um, it is unfortunate that, you know, our really our first guest as a, yeah. as a single person 
outside of us four was uh, was R.C. Dawson, and we did uh, lose R.C. last Thursday. So I don't know if it's appropriate, but I'm going to ask if we can sort of dedicate this podcast to him. And uh, and I'm sure there's others out there that we've lost this year too, but um, especially um, the anniversary and with R.C. being the first in our episode number two that we did last January. Yep, you uh, you read my mind, absolutely. This one's going out to him and uh, – all those that we lost in the past year, I know with COVID's been a big hit to a lot of us too, but, um, you know, I think a lot of people have lost family members, but RC is kind of one of the closest and dearest to this, this episode or this podcast anyway, since he was uh, kind of the inspiration that put us over the edge, and he was, like you said, the first real guest. So, uh, yep. here's to you, Tiny. Yep, thank you. Hey, and, and I'll, I'll mention this so that our guests understand that um, if they've got somebody out there they'd like us to talk to, you know, reach out to yourself or any one, four of us or sure. through the website because, you know, we, we've got ideas of our own, but it's really the members and the guests out there that are listening that um, will have things that we've never thought of, and we'd love to hear from them and, uh, so we can catch up with folks uh, before that day's too late. Yeah, and, um, I mean, I've got uh, – there's a couple of them already hit that, um, you know, the Bob Luckett episode for the uh, D.C. serial arsonist. I didn't realize he was working on a book. Uh, right after we started publishing these, um, one, of, one of the colleagues reached out from uh, the ATF that you know. He's, mm-hmm. He said, hey, you ought to interview Bob Luckett, who he and I both went to law enforcement school with. So his his was a suggestion that we got on. And um, we've gotten other suggestions along the way. Some of the ones, you know, looking towards next year, um, there's a, um, uh, the, you know, the fire services in Virginia that we've kind of focused on across the country. I've been able to talk to somebody in, in uh, Florida fire service, but I got on the hook uh, somebody who's been a firefighter and fire chief in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. one of the contract firefighters. And uh, so hoping to get get, hit, get him on for an episode. And uh, obviously Dennis Rubin's still on the hook. I've spoken with him. He wants to do it. I'd like to do his uh, episode in person. I'm sure that's going to be a lot more fun in person and um you know donnie hall's dad Irvin i o hall that uh was in the fire department with us mm-hmm. uh was a dispatcher but he was in recruit school one so he's in there and uh, a couple others on the on the hook so to speak but one of the ones that i'm going to consider kind of my goal is uh, i've reached out to somebody who's involved with the emergency television show to see if i can get someone and i'm boy if i can get the johnny and roy themselves on that would be fantastic but uh Hopefully somebody from the Fire Museum in L.A. to talk about the show and what it was and, and uh, kind of the impact it made to the fire service. Because another interesting point is um, uh, Ronald and, and Steve Maston, who Ronald was a fire chief in Tampa, that I got connected through family to friends to, to, to sit down with him. What I found out from him was a lot of the producers from that show actually came to the city of Tampa and rode along and were getting ideas for cases and incidents to work while they were there. So... Uh, Tampa was one of the leading EMS providers back in the day, and uh, they came to kind of see what they did. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Here in Virginia, we had a chance to have Jim Page as head of EMS and turned him down. <laughs> Didn't hire him. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's kind of funny you bring that up because there's a there's a uh, state fire marshal from out west, uh, Ed Altizer, myself, and a couple others were trying to recruit to be the Virginia state fire marshal, and she was. Um, looking pretty solid to be there and then somebody at the federal level offered her a big job and um i've actually reached out from her, her office or somebody from her office has reached out and said hey you, she'd be a great guest as well and i'm like you're darn tootin i've known her for a while so we'll hopefully get her her on as well after the first of the year just looking at some of my notes emergency first aired in 1972 and went for six seasons it seems like yesterday but 
was, was a few years ago. And it's still available yeah. on, I think it's Hulu, but you got to pay for the premium subscription to get it. Well, I used to tell people I was precepted by Johnny and Roy mm-hmm. because when we finished the first cardiac course here in Richmond area, uh, there, were, of course, no, was nobody to precept us. Mm-hmm. And so we thought emergency was how we were supposed to be doing it. Right. There. It was. So what's well, what's your best height on the Bristol Jet Bristol Caps? Jacks, I, I don't know. I could do pretty well. I, I had uh, a ceiling fan once. That was kind of my PR. So. Uh, I, I thought you were talking about the best height when we uh, used to defibrillate at 460. Oh, of the patient. Well, yeah. Of the patient. Yeah. I, know, I saw your eyes roll back in your head one day yeah. when uh, when you shot yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah. By yeah. accident. Yeah. When they say clear, clear means everybody, yeah. Yeah. to include yourself. The sad state of affairs is I was like, oh, who's going to help me pay rent next month? That's we were, right. <laughs> we were roommates then. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So what other, what other things have you learned about the episodes as they've come out or as we had these conversations? Well, I think we've had really good uh, listenership um, when you talk to some of the guys and gals in the station. And uh, they say, hey, I heard the podcast the other day. Well, you know, some of the ones that stood out for me were um, the Dutch Gap incident, um, Jerry Pruden. And uh, Mark Berry, Mark Berry. Uh, the the tech rescue guys really seem to grasp. How do they do that? I mean, how do you actually do that kind of thing? Climb up a tower three hundred and some feet. So and then get then get to the top and realize the ladder you're climbing on is tied off with a wire tie. Yep, exactly. So that was uh, one of my favorite episodes. Um, I think the one with cricket probably resonated with almost anybody in the fire service that you can do this for. I think forty seven years, um, and it's humorous, but it's it's got a lot of meaning to it. Uh, cricket jumped out there and then uh, another was Chief Eanes to be as sharp as he is still is just unbelievable when you can rattle off the paint codes to, from the DuPont the numbers. paint mm-hmm. and the details I mean uh, the Chief's just he's amazing and then uh, I'll tell you I have heard a lot of remarks and it's one of the latest ones was from JP and the pranks um, it was just classic and you know we can remember some of those that were done but he he reminded us all the ones well, he didn't remind you of all of them because I, I don't. I, I had to so. edit several of them out. Yeah, that that was probably yeah. the funnest one to do from from my perspective because you know JP have known I've known each other since the first day of recruit school and got to work. I got to work for him for a while, and then he worked for me, which was kind of payback, I guess, karma maybe. I don't know, but uh, knowing what he was like in the fire station and his just dry sense of humor and go, who me? I'm a lieutenant. I can't. I can't participate in those pranks and. So I got it, got him on record as uh, actually got him guilty now for a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we talked for probably two and a half hours and got maybe hours worth of material that we I could put out. So, but uh, you mentioned cricket. That's um, it, it, the fun part about this whole thing too is I can see all these episodes are still out there the, from episode one on to today. So anybody could get any of them at any time. And the one that's it seems every week crickets episode gets downloaded by somebody so that is that has been the the biggest downloaded episode of all of them all 30 episodes we've got out there right now and uh, it's gotten a lot of comments through facebook Um, that was probably the most popular one um, going forward but uh, the interesting part is that this thing has been heard in how many uh, probably 16 countries you know it's it's interesting to see where these things get downloaded the top Top one's obviously the U.S., but Canada, Philippines, U.K., and New Zealand are top the list of where these things are listened to. Um, it's been as far as Vietnam, Cyprus, you know, Australia, Puerto Rico, Brazil, Ireland. Uh, so it's kind of cool to see that. It's uh, Now, these people may be VPN and making their computer look like it's in New Zealand. But no, Henry uh, and I traveled out. 
Oh, you did you? Yeah, well, I appreciate, spots. I, mm-hmm. I appreciate Unless you that. While we're yeah. there. I appreciate yeah. that. You didn't take me with you? Now I'm irritated. <laughs> and uh, all, all across all across the U.S., um, 45 different states. So some, or I think Arkansas and Wyoming are the two two of the holdouts anywhere I can see. The other thing that I don't think listeners um, can grasp just from listening is that when we first talk to somebody about coming on, they, there's a lot of apprehension because they say, well, I, I don't know what to say. And, and once we discuss what we're doing, they sort of go, okay, I can come in here and talk a little bit. And by the end of the, uh, the episode, they're like, okay, I got to stop now. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, we got to stop. We're at an hour. And uh, so it's just to see that that transition that they go from that apprehension to being here that they don't really have anything to discuss to they they just open up yeah that that, that drives home uh kevin spaulding and don bowman in tales from the poker room it was one of the days we were getting together to play poker one night and you know the month before they're like how long do we need to talk i said eh, an hour hour and 20 minutes something like that it's nothing real set i don't think i could talk about anything for an hour and then you know we get in there and start talking and telling stories we've been an hour and 20 minutes deep and people start coming in to play poker and, and I said, well, we got to kind of pull the plug on this and we've been at it for an hour and 20 minutes. He goes, we were? And, yeah. and you're steadily telling stories and talking about the people that were involved in their careers along the years and it's been that that kind of, well, I guess we did have a lot to talk about. So, And it, and it seems like the uh, it's not just the older generation that's listening, it's the younger generation. Yeah. And they're really taking, uh, taking it in. Yeah, I've gotten a couple of comments emails uh, even through facebook or, or instagram about you know i can't believe you guys actually rode tailboards and i mm-hmm. can't, couldn't believe the stories particularly from the the folks that were that wore chemox masks and filter masks before scba were a thing and uh, you know thankfully we're still able to capture some of those stories going forward but I, you mentioned the younger crowd I, the, probably one of the a series of episodes i had the, the the most positive comments on particularly from the older crowd the retirees were the three episodes we had with the r- rookies from Chesterfield. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was, you know, a lot of the comments were, you know, Matt, that's pretty impressive. You know, I always thought the younger generation was just here for, you know, flash in the pan, but these people really had a passion for what, what was going on, why they were there, and kind of gave them a lot of hope for the for the organization. I think that at least that organization and the fire service as a whole. Well, I think the podcast validates a lot of what they've heard from other generations. You know, they've heard the tales about the tailboard, and they've heard, you know, some of the things that, happened and we did during training and and so on but then you get together and it's formalized and it's published and it's available and they realize that it, it actually validates what we told them took place yeah and we weren't totally lying to them no much of it was true made up a few things but uh and some of them we forgot but uh yeah so uh moving forward uh what do you think we you know there's you think there's more stories out there what what type of stories do you think we ought to focus on I mean, we we definitely know it's it's endless on what we can uh, um, guess we can have on and the topics we can have. Um, that's why we sort of ask the the viewers out there to reach out to us and let us know. Yeah. And because uh, I'm sure they've got something in mind that that we haven't thought of, and you know, we're just a, a just a phone call away from making that contact with somebody to to come on and uh, speak, or we come to them and yeah. or the people. You know, I, I I'm trying to hook up with a guy in Michigan right now, Ron Farr. He's the he was a retired state fire marshal. He was a fire chief. He was a firefighter, still active in his department up in Michigan. And uh, we had a little technical issue this weekend, so uh, we couldn't. I couldn't get him on. Um, love to go out there and hang out with him, maybe in the summer because he's in Michigan. That state's shaped like a mitten, and it's cold all the time. But 
Um, you know, he, he is, they, they call him the godfather of Michigan Fire Inspectors Society, which is the fire prevention group in the state. And I think he was the secretary treasurer for you know, 20 plus years and really made that organization into something that it was. And a lot of the people in the state look up to him as kind of the mentor and the godfather of that. And so those kind of people. So if there are, you know, those people who are mentors of yours that you want to hear more of their stories and uh, share those stories. That's kind of the folks we're looking to see, not just necessarily the incidents, but the people. That's uh, that's what we're all about. You also brought up a good point when we spoke last week. It's not that we're running out of people, but now it looks like there's a, a desire for us to branch out into areas of incidents uh, and to give an opinion from, you know, the operations administration, the community risk reduction areas of, you know, kind of how we viewed an incident that may have happened 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Yeah, and it kind of spins off of that Pen of Boring incident. I mean, that's the one R.C. was involved in. That's kind of started the conversation at that station with him that day. And um, if we go back not too long ago, the last episode went out with Carl Thompson from Florida, and uh, he does this daily kind of history email list that talks about all the incidents that have happened on this date in history over time, and most of them are fire-related. But uh, I asked him how that started, and he said he was kind of shocked that he was with a, a new group of firefighters, and he mentioned – some, some one of the one of the big fires that kind of shaped how we do business, whether it was um, Coconut Grove or MGM Grand or Iroquois Theater or, or you know Triangle Shirtwaist, and they were like the what? And uh, he said well, we're losing. You know, we we learned I learned about that in recruit school because it was part of the history, pretty of, much the lore. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and I think today the training a rookie firefighter that's kind of. If we get to it, nice. But we got a long list of stuff that we can get to if we if it, that's nice. But we got an even longer list of stuff we got to get to to get to meet the pro qualifications and all True. the other stuff. So they, some of that kind of falls on the wayside. So um, with with that idea from uh, Carl, uh, I kind of want to start doing maybe a monthly um, uh, this date in history kind of thing and talking about one significant fire that happened in that month. Um, so we ideally have twelve. 12 fires to include, you know, the Triangle Shirtways, Coconut Grove, Iroquois Theater, the Richmond Theater. I just saw a news uh, story on that the other night. It's the 200th anniversary, maybe? Yeah, early eight, early really 1800s. It stands uh, out as the uh, the station nightclub fire because mm-hmm. it was one of the first that I can recall where we had such vivid video and audio coming out of the scene because it was the era when cell phones had just begun to capture. And mm-hmm. um, it's it just, it, you can't unhear the things or unsee the things you know prior to that the fires we saw in the 50s and 60s you know you had still images and and it had some impact but it didn't have the impact of for instance the station nightclub yeah and i've got a contact in rhode island i, I called uh, maybe i'll call Vinny and see if he's willing I'd, I'd like to talk to people who may have had a close contact with that now i don't think as many people around that had any close contact with triangle but uh no. but but the nightclub would be a good one. I, I had been in the nightclub when we were teaching up there. I didn't know. I was trying to remember just now when you were talking about if you had been there when we used to do the stuff. I never went to any bars with you guys when we would go out of town, John. That's right. right. He would stay at the <laughs> hotel you, and prepare you might, study you might for the be next fibbing there, I, I was <laughs> I was preparing my lesson plans for, <laughs> for the, the next, next day. day. <laughs> when we were doing all that stuff in West Warwick. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. How close was that? Because that's, that's just right, down, the street, down, the down the street from there. there. I don't think I ever went there, but I, 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 might, I might be stretching the truth a little bit so, about here. Yeah, I was trying to remember. I know y'all went to a couple of other places. That yeah, the library? Oh, that was in Richmond. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the library. All right, moving on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we did. Nah, I, was, I was 
I did see uh, Bob Burnett break dance in a club one time down in Portsmouth, but that's a whole other story. Uh, you can't unsee I won't that. Talk about that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you it's, talk about those. Bar, history. I thought it was a bar. <laughs> yeah, but in when we think about those history events, it, it is the things that we learn from a tactical side, maybe a construction side, but also from a prevention side. There are a lot of codes that are in place today because of these past fires, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I know for myself from the fire marshal's office, you know, that's significant to us, but it, it's also significant for the operations. Because it's what's making the building safe, not only for the occupants, but for the firefighters that have got to come in afterwards. Well, you bring up a great point. We were talking earlier about some of the um, the show prep, if you will, and talking about the uh, the St. Elizabeth's uh, fire, the Mercy Hospital fire, mm-hmm. uh, which is in some of our notes. But I realized the Joint Commission, which is the accreditation agency for hospitals, was established about a year or so after that event. Of course, um, you know, they're very strict regulations, but they're important and they serve a good purpose. You won't find most nurses that would agree with that. But um, JACO came out after that event and clearly has made some impact. Yeah, they, they, they started implementing life safety code. You know, NFPA 101 is the, the code that they actually enforce, uh, even though the state code may be uh, I code based or something else. They right. still have to comply with the I code to get CMS funding. So. Unless one, they want to give up some of those federal dollars, they're yeah, not, they're not going to do that. They got to have, they got to comply with those. So, uh, you know, here's the here's the interesting thing is at least a conversation I got into um, last week up at the up at the Crystal Palace in Quincy, Mass. Was uh, if if we start forgetting these fires like Triangle and and the Station Nightclub still pretty new, or the Worcester or. Uh, the Charleston sofa store. If mm-hmm. we start forgetting those, how likely is that that something like that is going to happen again in the future? That old saying of, you know, if we forget history, it's doomed to repeat it. Uh, do you think we're going to run into that as well? That's certainly possible. The other thing is that it gives context to a lot of the rules and procedures that we have. You know, we used to say in, in, when we were in the fire department that nearly every rule that came out, there was a name associated with it. Well, the same is true with a lot of the procedures in, that fire departments now accept universally. We screwed up a lot of times on these incidents in the past, and we learned from them. Yeah, RIT or RIC, whichever your verbiage you use, the two-in-two mm-hmm. two out rules, uh, those all sure. come from there, – there are firefighters' names attached to them. I you know, wish, right. wish we could – name them after them to keep their memory alive, but that, there's a reason for it. Exactly. Right. right. Mandatory rehabbing. Yep. Uh, just the list goes on, but there's there's some significant events that have taken place and lessons learned. Yeah, so uh, that's a, that would be the other ask for the listeners, if there's a, a big fire that you're uh, familiar with. I, I, I know Keith Brower, who I've had on here before, he actually did a lot of research for one of these fires that's on my, on my list coming up this year, and I'm going to have him back as a guest to talk about that because he's, he's delved, dove into it. Uh, I got a couple other people that have um, have done EFO papers on certain incidents, so I'm going to have them on to talk about it. Somebody certainly spent the time to to do the research. I'm going to tap into their brain to to kind of get the, get their history lesson from them and talk about it. And, and the thing is, that, you know, listeners should think that or should not think that these events can't happen again. I mean, this this past weekend down in North Carolina, yep, North Carolina the warehouse, 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 yeah. mm-hmm. A huge warehouse fire that you would think, how did that happen? Now, obviously, it's early on, a couple of days out, but still, those events can happen, and we as the fire service, medical service, and law enforcement are going to respond to those events today and tomorrow. Yeah. We had really good uh, listenership from the Broad Street VCU fire, which mm-hmm. was 15, 20 years ago now. And, I, and I'm still 
I still apologize for making a comment about the engine on fire, and it was uh, it one, was uh, one of his <laughs> one of those the guys. Yeah, the captain's truck. I'm like, sorry about that. I didn't mean to bring that sore subject up, but but uh, you know, Raleigh. Uh, about two years ago, Raleigh burned down an entire city block, which yeah. was an apartment complex mm-hmm. under construction, and it's happened in numerous spots. Uh, yes. From something as, cig- as simple as what we think was probably a cigarette that went down the dumpster. Right. And, yeah, I mean, it happens here, too. I mean, this uh, this one I shared with you guys to kind of highlight with this episode is at Mercy Hospital fire. That happened in 1950, January of 1950. Uh, I'm going to test your brains here. January 1994, what happened? Very close to here. Oh, yeah. Southside Regional Hospital caught fire, bur- killed killed six patients oh, yeah. in there, and uh, um, so yeah, I mean it, it's bound to happen. I, I you know certainly uh, Southside Regional wasn't in the shape that Mercy Hospital was in in 1950. It's there's certainly a lot more uh, fire protection features and safety features in there at the time at, in 1994, but still they, they were missing uh, one thing that they were fighting for in 1950 and. 1994, they still didn't have it. So, hmm. all right. So let's talk about that that hospital hospital fire. This um, this was in Davenport, Iowa, um, January 7th, 1950. Just to paint the picture, it was a fire that came in at two in the morning. Uh, the weather that day in Iowa was 19 degrees outside with about a 10 mile an hour wind. Uh, this, uh, the, the uh, they call it the Mercy Hospital fire, but it was the St. Elizabeth's Ward of Mercy Hospital. It was the largest hospital in Davenport, Iowa that was run, it was a Catholic hospital run by the Sisters of Mercy. Um, and I think the building actually exists today under some other name, so there's still a medical facility there, but it's uh, not, not St. Elizabeth's Ward or Mercy Hospital anymore. But that specific ward was a separate building from the main hospital, uh, and it was really built for as a psychiatric facility, mostly for women. Um, it was a three-story, 60-year-old building, mostly brick, um, about 7,000 square feet per floor. So that would be a you know, 21,000 square feet total. Um, a lot of issues with um, the facility and the structure. You know, being a mental hospital in 1950, uh, those things were obviously a concern then now when you talk about it being three stories are you counting the attic as the third floor or the basement uh all i read was because it had had two two main stories an attic and a basement right two main stories and the i saw it was a you know depending on how you looked at it maybe the attic was the fourth story but the attic plus two plus a basement so it could it's four floors so yeah right and on, on one side the basement was completely above ground above ground yeah and one so of the sloping. articles mentioned that there was uh, no suppression system there was no uh, alarm system and mm-hmm. then the patients were either restrained um chemically or physically in in the institution and i think um there were bars on the windows and the doors to bars sec- and grates right yeah there was there was another one of the articles that talked about the there was one of the windows I should say only one of the windows had a latch on the outside that that, the rescuers could open and get ready access. All the others, they basically had to chop the The bars and grates, the wood around the window and get the grates out. Yeah. So um, now we talk about that and, and we think that, oh, my God, that was 1950. None of us would ever see anything like that. Uh. In 75, I worked at a psychiatric hospital here in Richmond when I came out of high school. Much, much smaller 
but the exact same things in this report happened could have happened there. Mm -hmm. So did they not have suppression? They, they didn't, didn't have even have a standpipe. This building had a standpipe. They didn't even have a standpipe. Okay. Uh, when they went to the new building in 77, 78, they, they put standpipes in there, but no sprinklers. Uh, no fire partitions, uh, stairway doors locked, individual rooms locked, bars and grates on the outside windows. Uh, all of that was going on then. Um, you know, and, and again, you know, particularly in the closed unit, uh, you had, uh, had two people in the building during an average shift as so, far as staff. Which was not unlike this facility. I think, uh, what did it have, about 60 patients and two staff. It was a right. nurse's aide and a, and a nurse a that nurse. was there. Um, and, and one of the, I think it was a nurse's aide, passed away in the fire as well. Right. Right. Because, like I say, I was right out of high school, uh, just an EMT, no other medical training, uh, and I was the second person in the closed unit. Wow. And uh, I, I, I vividly remember part of one day where we had a combative patient, and I ended up accidentally getting 50 of Thorazine instead of him, and I don't remember the rest of the <laughs> shift. <laughs> yeah, you got a free, uh, free trip there, huh? So, yeah. That's probably more to that story. The nurse was aiming for the right person. <laughs> you, you got in the way. Dang, damn it. That's it. Dang, damn it. So in the, big, in the big scheme of things, if you look at, you know, everybody, this was, um, what did I say, 41 fatalities, 40 of them were patients. Um, there were 25 or 30 rescues that, have, that were affected, uh, depending on which article you read. Um, but this, you know, 41 people dying, that's not the worst hospital fire there were three other or this was the third deadliest in the u.s uh the biggest was uh, the cleveland clinic in 1929 where 125 died and um another one st anthony's hospital only nine months before this one yeah um in uh 1949 was that was nine months before in illinois so it's like you know history is repeating itself i mean petersburg wasn't as bad as you know having 40 people died but it certainly had the potential well an interesting start uh to the Mercy Fire is that I believe it was it was started by a patient that had a lighter of some sort and then she escaped through a window. Yeah, so she tried to escape went through out the, the transom, transom. Yeah, the glass transom over the window, and that was one of the one of the things they said in some of the uh, reports were that that caused the fire to spread because some of the window some of the transoms had windows that had glass, some of them didn't, so the fire was able to travel into the patient rooms. Uh, but there was a number of problems associated with uh, open dumb waiters, open shafts, and the so this was on the second floor is where it started. She had smuggled a lighter in, I think, or someone had smuggled it to her, and she started a set of curtains on fire. And uh, that's and that I think it was the nurse's aide that got her headed out, got her out, and the nurse's aide was continuing to work to get somebody out and passed away as well. One of, the, one of the scenarios they talk about in here from a heroic rescue uh, perspective and you know, talk about having, um, having guts. This police officer got fire crews to douse him with water. Then he went inside via a window and rescued at least one woman. So this is uh, a police officer who wanted to be a fireman, wanted to be rescues, uh, and nothing disparaging against him. But uh, certainly it took some, uh, some guts to, hey, hose me down. I'm going to go in and get somebody. And that's all the protection he had was being mm -hmm. wet going through the door and uh, wound up rescuing someone. The other, uh, the other thing that this came, comes out with was um, there was no staff training as to what to do in the event of a fire. I know now a lot of today's codes require 
staff training, mm-hmm. uh, drills, exercises to get, if not f- physically move all the patients during the drill, but you have to exercise that drill and that plan and educate the staff. And that's extended even to the ambulatory care centers, mm-hmm. um, medical facilities. Well, you were talking about uh, Petersburg, and that, that brings an interesting contrast because that hospital did have enough fire protection features that you didn't have to totally remove people from the building. Yeah, they you had could smoke compartments. Fire one fire area of building to a different fire area, and they could be protected. None of that was in place for this building. Yeah, and that's still in place today. Uh, the interesting part is the uh, the codes uh, three years ago now uh, basically doubled the size of the smoke compartment that's available. Um, I don't think the feds have gotten to that level and adopted that addition yet but now we've got twice as much floor area twice as many patients to evacuate in the same period of time and some of the concerns are is how quickly does it take to get those patients out of that smoke compartment into the next and even in that some of the um uh, some of the case studies i've read for some of the work wheaton i did with hospitals in the past has been the challenges is that smoke compartment that the fire is in the smoke gets into two adjacent compartments pretty heavily as well so what you know, it, is that is that strategy a very solid tact strategy and tactic to to save the patients and get them out of the hazard area? Uh, one day we'll figure it out, I'm sure, but uh, we'll see. What, anything else with this episode or with this what, uh, fire? Well, you talk about the challenges from the firefighters. Um, you know, you talked about the temperatures being below freezing, and they were talking about the um, the firefighters having essentially frostbite yep. from um, from their efforts and. Uh, wedding maybe these police officers and wedding other things but just their efforts they were and and it's not like they could stop they didn't have the rehab conditions or situation uh setups that we have today they they kept going so yeah they i think i found one picture it's an old picture of, the, of a firefighter sitting in front of a stove or an oven with his feet trying his, to yeah mm-hmm. trying to trying to combat frostbite when it was happening right talking about the emergency action plan uh it's not a hospital example, but in the recent tornadoes, we, we see an incident that's probably going to make news of people being killed because of either failure to have an emergency action plan or failure to follow it. They kept the workers working. Right. In the plant. Yeah, I saw that, and they're talking about um, suits being filed already. So, um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the emergency action plan, I'll, I'll finish up with one thing to say on that. The best emergency action plan in the world is no good if it sits on a shelf and nobody knows what it says. True. Right. And we see that happen a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many times they think they have to write something large and um, a lot of material in it. It doesn't have to be a lot of material. It just has to be known by a lot of people. And, but then the more important part right. is communicating it. Yes. Yep. You know, we, we see a lot of people that write it so they can check the box. I've got it. Right. And yeah. Uh, if their people can't execute it, if their people don't know what's expected. Yep. Yeah, not only to, to their own staff, but to the responding agencies. Exactly. You know, what, yes. what can you as a fire officer expect when you pull up at this n- n- nursing facility, skilled care facility, hospital? What are what are they going to be doing? Right. That's uh, probably a good idea for those crews doing pre-plans. To how, you know, okay, what's your emergency plan locally, and what are they going to be doing when they get there? A couple of interesting quotes from um, – uh, some of the articles I saw, this is out of a fire engineering article, the design and construction of the structure and the headway made by this fire before crews, before fire crews could get into action 
virtually precluded effective inside operations, and eventually all firefighting had to be undertaken from the exterior. So uh, certainly you, you would bet these guys were well-versed and well-practiced, well-educated for the day, and, uh, but the, they didn't have much of a chance once they got there and saw what they had. Well, the combustible materials, yep. you know, the standards that have changed so drastically from, from a hospital perspective as to what you can and cannot have in the facility and the, the smoke compartment and the penetration separations and, and those standards, you know, have made a tr- significant impact. Yeah. I think the other thing that stood out to me was this was an article um, from 2020, so it was 60 70 years after the incident, and there was an article from uh, one of the last responding firefighters to the call. So, you know, 70 years later, and this guy is still talking about how impactful it was to him then and can't, can't drive by that location in the town where he lives without hearing the screams, seeing the visions of the, the people behind the bars trying to beat their way out, and even smelling the smells associated with that fire. So... Uh, I'm going to say, thankfully, today we've got far better critical incident stress debriefing and peer support, and we take care of our people more, way better mentally and emotionally after incidents like this than we did in the 50s. But I think that's just kind of a clear indication that incidents like this stick with people for the rest of their lives. And that one firefighter said he, he, he still, that was one of the first times he had actually talked about it because it was so impactful to him. And you're right, we've all got those events, whether they're single medical episodes or um, these large-scale events like this um, that stick with us. And, and you're right, we are fortunate that we've got the the uh, mental health component, and, um, the other team members, support peer, peer support system team members uh, that we can reach out to. And, um, you know, again, I encourage anybody that needs to reach out or even thinks they need to reach, reach out to those folks. They're there to talk and help and you know they they they're trained to do something that we we think we're trained to do, but they they know they know how to respond to us yeah. as an individual. Yeah. And even with all that still in place, there, there's a price that goes with this being your vocation. It is. It is. There's so much that you can't unsee and unhear, um, but those team members and those specialists are so impactful in helping us put it in the box and and put it on the shelf so it doesn't come back out. True. Anything else with this incident, the hospital, Mercy Hospital fire? No, I think you're on to something great, and that's um, bringing these older significant events back to discussion. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot to learn from it and look forward to uh, seeing what we can do each month to uh, to not showcase but to discuss each of these. Yeah. It, it's going to be interesting, I'm betting. I, you know, I learned uh, just looking at the podcast we've done so far this year, there's a lot of stuff I learned about people that I worked my whole career with. And Jerry Pruden is a great example of that. I, I never knew he got his start on the EMS side of the shop as a volunteer in the rescue squad up in Fredericksburg. As, as, as much as he hated going on an EMS call <laughs> on, on 143 on the pike, if I had known that back then as the, his ALS provider, I would have certainly taken advantage of that. <laughs> so he's probably did a good thing to, to keep that one from me. So, uh, Learning those stories of those individuals or these fires, I think, is uh, kind of going to be the focus going forward this year. Well, guys, thanks uh, thanks again for uh, taking some time this afternoon and sitting down and thanks recording this. Me. And like Henry said, it's um, if you want to, if you have any ideas for 
Uh, fires to cover, fires to talk about from a historical perspective. I've got um, a couple of historians on the hook to maybe talk about a couple of fires. We'll see how that goes. Or any ideas for people that uh, would be an interesting guest, please reach out to me. You can do that through firehouselogbook at gmail.com. On Instagram at FD Logbook Podcast, Twitter's just FD Logbook, and uh, you'll see some pictures, videos, and I'll post um, updates when episodes drop on Facebook. So make sure you follow along there. Uh, Wheat, John, Henry, anything else? Oh, Robbie, I just want to say thank you because you are definitely the uh, the tip of the spear when it comes to this uh, this effort and this podcast. And uh, there's many people out there that have um, been educated, been enlightened, and 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 had a good uh, a good time listening to each and every one of these podcasts. So thank you for putting those together. I'm glad to do. I'm just the monkey that pushes record. Man. It's been That's a quick year. It doesn't seem like it, you know. It has. I you know when I started looking, I'm like, oh crap. We we were in this room less just about a year ago doing this for the first time when we took the first crack at it before we had to do it again. So uh, we'll call this the um, R.C. Dawson episode memorial. Uh, tip of the chapeau to R.C. and his family, and wishing all of them well and. Uh, Thanks for thanks to him for being able to share with us his his history back last January and uh, looking forward to sharing more as we go through the next year. Thank you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Robbie.